0: It is the magic of books, isn't it? These moments of connection. And I have to tell you, joining that conversation as a writer, the one I'd always been part of as a reader, and I think of it as a dialogue, has really been a dream come true for me.
1: Welcome to Drinks with Nick. My name is Nick Petrolakis. I'll be interviewing some of the best writers around because one of the things Almost as good as reading a terrific book is talking to its author. Oh, and there might be drinks along the way. I was a bookseller for more than 20 years, and the opportunity to speak with writers was one of the job's great perks. That and connecting with you, the readers who walked through my door, as we figured out together what your next brilliant read should be. I've been creating cocktails and other beverages for my favorite books for more than a decade. The romance between words and drinks has a long history, and I wanted to celebrate that affinity and the storytellers I admire. Why don't you come along as the best writers talk about the best books with cocktail detours along the way, because I do love a good detour. I'm excited to launch Drinks with Nick by talking with Sarah Collins, best-selling debut author of The Confessions of Franny Langton. It's been raved over by Margaret Atwood, is being adapted for television, is winning awards. In other words, it's accomplished quite a lot in its short life. The novel begins in April of 1826, and Franny Langton, former slave in Jamaica, former servant in London, finds herself on trial in the Old Bailey. She stands accused of murder the bloody slaying of both her employer and his wife. The novel is Franny's confession, but you'll be surprised to read what it is she finds herself and her time guilty of. Surprised again as Franny reaches across two centuries to speak directly, intimately, of our own trying times. It's a page-turning mystery, a love story, gothic in its details, and expertly crafted. It was easily one of my favorite books of 2019. When Sarah Collins and I spoke, I was outside of Boston, and she was in the Cayman Islands. We were in the middle of the summer's lockdowns, necessitated by the threat of COVID-19. Sarah had been visiting the Caymans, where she was able to spend time with her father. Sarah's visit, though, was interrupted by the quarantines. So what did that mean for her?
0: So it means that I am um, stuck, if one can be stuck in the Cayman Islands. And actually, uh, we were declared COVID-free here four weeks ago because... But, you know, it's good and bad. We're COVID-free because the airport's essentially locked. They only allow um, evacuation flights and emergency, you know, returning residents. And there's a strict quarantine. So there hasn't been a transmission for two months. But it does mean... You know we're stuck. Right. We're, I can't can't get back home, but life is normal. So it's very eerie because you know we we get the news obviously and see that things haven't really changed for people in the UK or in America. But here, you know, we're not even. There's no need to wear masks or to socially distance. Oh my gosh! Or to change anything at all, yeah. So it does it does feel a little bit like <laughs> we are just not part of the same planet. <laughs>
1: I don't know about you, but that? The sounds of a long-ago happy hour? That's one of the things I miss most, especially after hearing Sarah describe the eeriness of being in the Cayman Islands, COVID-free for months, while the rest of us are still in the middle of a deadly, stuttering shutdown. If we could join that happy hour, I'd do so with a drink in hand, one I made using ingredients Sarah included in her novel. A cocktail was first defined a few hundred years ago, as any stimulating liquor mixed with sugar, water, and bitters. That's it. And Sarah gave me all those fixings inside the confessions of Franny Langton. So let's wade into a happy hour of our own devising and mix up something special together. I'll do a very quick drinks with Nick (laughs) when I read a book that I am especially enamored of. I'm instantly looking for ingredients to make a drink. And sometimes bless you, because there are some (laughs) writers who who don't give me a lot of inspiration in the story. I I, write I'm looking for alcohol that that is helpful but I'm also looking for scents um, and for flavors and uh, you know know, tobacco and smoke and chocolate and lavender and sherry and and chestnuts and cider and plums and champagne and you gave me all of that well it's a Jamaican Um, book
0: so you had the rum for a start
1: (laughs) yes and rum actually I I lost count of how many times rum is mentioned in the book and (laughs) since it begins in Jamaica. And since I did have a wee tot of Jamaican rum left over from our travels there a few years ago, I did want to use rum. And I did want something that was appropriate for the time. And I, when I made the drink, I called it Franny's Old Fashioned. But of course, since the story takes place in the 1820s, they hadn't yet started calling those drinks Old Fashions. That was literally a term Oh, I I don't want some of those newfangled drinks. Oh,
0: yeah. Makes sense.
1: You know, make me an (laughs) old-fashioned drink. So I'm going to have to rename it. But we did go with a rum, old-fashioned, and so... I'm just gonna and as uh, you know, we I,
0: had we served Franny's old fashions at my book launch, so thank you for that, um, which was an absolute enhancement of the whole occasion.
1: Well, and no, I want to thank you because that was the first time that my cocktail of mine had you know traveled across <laughs> the pond, and so that was wonderful for me. Traveled across the um, pond
0: and went down very well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
1: So I'm just gonna throw first the the cube of sugar in my glass, and I'm gonna do. Uh, just a little bit so usually you're going to wet the cube for an old fashioned with bitters and a little bit of warm water and so instead I am doing the bitters and I'm using Abbott's bitters because that was that's one of the older bitters I think maybe that started in the 1870s or something but I'm also going to add a little bit, instead of just warm water, I want to bring molasses into it because molasses is also something that is mentioned quite frequently in the book. And so I did make a little bit of a molasses, simple syrup. Molasses is such a strong flavor, though, that the, the syrup is, you know, two parts water to one part molasses. And I'm just literally throwing a, a little bar spoon of that in. And I'm just going to muddle that up. And then I'm getting my rum... Again, a beautiful Jamaican rum, and then I'm tossing one cube of ice in there, and somebody said I had to stir that for 30 seconds, but I may not go for the total 30, and I wish at this point that I were making this drink for you. I would, Um, yeah,
0: I wish at this point I was right there. I can hear the tantalizing tinkling of ice. (laughs)
1: Oh, I forgot to remind Sarah that the garnish for her drink isn't what you usually find in an old-fashioned, a slice of orange zest. Instead, I use a candied orange peel because there's this moment during her trial when Franny's commenting on how crowded the gallery is, and then she notices that many of the onlookers are snacking on the candied peel of oranges. It's such a quiet but delicious detail that I had to use it. So, rum, sugar, molasses, and bitters. That's all. Stirred with a snack, stolen from the book. Now that we have our happy hour well underway, let's get back to our conversation with Sarah Collins about the confessions of Franny Langton. And first, of course, thank you so much for taking the time. Not at all. It's a pleasure. I know that you must be so very busy.
0: Yeah, I've actually I've actually sort of put a little put a gate down, but I let you through the gate because I remember our fantastic meeting and also all of your wonderful social media support. So there are a few people who get through the gate, but I'm sure you you will know that. And then I've, I've acquired this kind of screenwriting gig. So going back into trying to produce work means I really do have to stop promoting right. this book now if people would let me, but I have made a few exceptions and I'm really happy that you're well, one of them.
1: I so. can only say that I'm, <laughs> I am thrilled that I got <laughs> through the gate. One of the things that I wanted to talk about was just the acclaim that you've received first Oprah reaches out. Then you had that wonderful quote from Margaret Atwood, where she tweeted out how the book was elegant and tough, and it was the wide Sargasso sea (laughs) meets Frankenstein. You know, you had the Guardian saying that, you know, here's a star in the making. Then the the wonderful Costa Award, the first novel award, which (laughs) only people like Jeanette (laughs) Winterson... Rachel Cusk, Sadie Smith have won, and now it's being adapted for television. I mean, you're you're in your garret typing away. Then how do you sort of process that after you've done the solitary thing for so long, and now people have taken it and have told you how wonderful the book is? (laughs)
0: what a marvelous question to start with. I almost have to take a moment just to let what you've said soak in, because when it is all corralled together like that, it still sort of takes my breath away. You know, I still find it all very incredible and very surreal. And, oh, you are so right about my garret. You know, it is a literal garret, a kind of room right at the very top corner of my house where the noise of my family, you know, hardly ever reaches. And so it felt very isolated. And because writing comes really, really hard to me, it's not something that I find either pleasurable or easy to do. I was trapped in that, garret. I became really obsessive about writing the book, but also the more I wrote it, the more I recognized how beyond me it was. So it required more and more work. And it took just under two years to write. And about a year and a half of those two years was almost complete isolation, doing nothing but writing, sleeping, eating. I would not recommend that to any aspiring writers for all kinds of reasons. But it felt lonely. And it felt like something that I was doing with very little expectation that it would pay off. So I do keep joking with my family and friends that, you know, it was either going to go one of two ways. Everyone was going to say, well, she's completely (laughs) nuts. You know, she spent two years (laughs) like some kind of cloistered person and absolutely nothing came of it. Or I was going to look like an absolute genius. Like, well, I knew all of this. Of course, I knew Oprah was going to be calling. Well, I mean, um, but the the point is connection. Sure. Uh, the point is that um, I'd always been a reader. I fell in love with books really early. Books are my lifelong love, my absolute obsession, and they have saved my life and shaped it. And I felt strongly, and I have felt since I was very young, that I could join the conversation from the other side. That I could write something, and I had something to write. And I think that's what kept me going. And it's this marvellous feeling then of coming out of that period of isolation and finding these moments of connection, with, including with people like Margaret Atwood, who is one of my literary heroes. It, it is the magic of books, isn't it? These, these moments of connection. And I have to tell you, joining that, conversation as a writer, the one I'd always been part of as a reader, and I think of it as a dialogue has really been a dream come true for me.
1: Well, I'm sure. And I mean, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, how intense the writing process was, because there's that wonderful line, I think, late in the book, where Franny is thinking that she spent so long thinking what to write, that she never wrote anything. And for some <laughs> writers, right, I think that's the, that's the trick writers, write, And so the fact that you put yourself in that chair for so many hours every day. And again, how long was that first period, almost two years where you, you took a, a day or two off?
0: Yeah, I had, I can still remember the days off, <laughs> um, There was there was only one complete day off and then the others, you know, as a sort of uh, adding together half days, even when we were on holiday, I I still haven't been forgiven by my family. (laughs) Part of it was that I was fortunate enough to sign with an agent before I had finished the book. Really, I can be honest about it now because <laughs> I probably wasn't then before I'd even really properly started writing the book. It was shortlisted for a prize in the UK, which is actually quite a good prize, unfortunately open only to residents of the UK for unpublished novels by first-time female writers. And as part of the shortlisting, my current agent, who was a judge, had invited me for a feedback session and then you know straight away said without getting into the feedback, said, I'd like to offer you representation. And for an aspiring writer, you know, that's a kind of heart stopping moment. So I said, yes, you know, I tried to sort of restrain myself from throwing myself across the room and hugging her and sobbing. But I did also say, well, I haven't actually finished the book. And she said, oh, no, that's fine. You know, I'm quite happy to wait. But then the problem was the clock started ticking. Now, that was both good and bad, because I think it's really helpful to have a ticking clock when you're writing a novel. I don't actually know how anyone finishes writing one of these things without without Mm -hmm. having someone waiting for it. Because I had her waiting for it, I had what I describe as my Eminem moment, you know, where he says you've only got one shot. I really felt like I've got to pull out all the stops, get this thing finished in a reasonable period of time. You know, she's waiting. I want to take advantage of the opportunity. And so I put a little bit of artificial pressure on myself, hence the two years, you know, only two days off. Mm -hmm. I guess it paid off, but (laughs) I don't think I'd ever be able to work at that pace again. Well,
1: hopefully you have bought yourself time where... (laughs) 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 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that does lead into another question, you know, sort of the, the why. There's that passage that begins on page 129. I'm going to ask you to read in, in just a moment. That was I needed. You have a career. You are quite a successful lawyer. You are raising a family of five. And then suddenly you are going to write a novel. And I know that, Mm -hmm. and it's probably apocryphal, those statements that are attributed to Toni Morrison, where she says, I wrote my first novel because I wanted to read it. Or, you know, the other line is something like, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you are the one that must write it. And I want to believe that those are things that actually (laughs) Toni Morrison said. (laughs) That she did say. (laughs) And, And so it's just, I'm sort of curious that you have this one life, that you are fully entrenched in and are quite good at, and then you pivot. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd love for you to you know reflect on that. But then also, if I could twist your arm a little bit and read that passage, it would be great.
0: I'll read the passage first, and then we can sure. reflect on sure. changing your life <laughs> and pivots.
1: There's a connection. It ties together.
0: <clears throat> just having a look, just finding it. I coughed. I couldn't speak about paradise, but I couldn't be silent either. Books were my companions, I said at last, raising my voice above the wind, sweeping the leaves and her skirts. And I am grateful I could learn something, no matter how I came to do so. It was a way to know that lives could change, that they could be filled with adventures. There were times I pretended I was a lady in a novel or a romance myself. It might sound foolish, but it made me feel a part of a world that otherwise I could never belong to.
1: I just love that. And I'm wondering how much at that moment is Franny speaking and and how much is the author speaking?
0: That's such a good question. I mean, Franny is... I would say almost zero parts, Sarah, certainly the potentially murderous parts have (laughs) nothing to do with me. (laughs) Um, But if there is a kernel of Franny that came from me, and I think that there always has to be a kernel of a protagonist that comes from authors, but we're really cagey about admitting that because, you know, our protagonists, if they're interesting, are going to be doing all kinds of dastardly things. But if there is a kernel of her that came from me, it is this idea that she was raised by books somehow, and that books have been her companions. And also that from books, she shaped her sense of the potential in herself and in life, and that she wanted more than her circumstances. She she has in common with one of my favorite protagonists, this idea that um, books somehow directed her and, and that's um, Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she she, finally shares a lot of Jane Eyre's DNA. And then I think I share a lot of Jane Eyre's (laughs) DNA. So it's all you know, there's, there's no coincidences. And it's why I wrote a novel. In a way, this novel is a bit of a, um, a reflection on my own love story, and what reading did for me, but also, and more I guess, more to the point, it's a reflection on what I would have lost had I been in the position of someone like Franny, you know, born a few hundred years ago Mm -hmm. when I didn't have the opportunity to learn and to pursue a profession and to find some kind of outlet for my own intellectual abilities. And, you know, going back to what you said about Toni Morrison, I hadn't seen a book like that Mm you know, I, I've said a lot on the road promoting this book that I, you know, here I am in the 21st century, a black woman writing historical fiction. Everyone assumes I'm going to be dealing with slavery. I really didn't want to. I, I um, you know, fought against the idea for a long time. But then I realized I wanted to tackle a, an aspect of it that I hadn't seen tackle before. And that was this, this sense of loss. It's not about the physical suffering and the things that we've almost some come to see cliches of slavery now, you know, the brutality and the deprivation. But this idea that highly intelligent and talented people uh, would have been prevented from finding uh, a way to express that. It goes back to something that Alice Walker said in that marvelous essay of hers, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, you know, who were the artists in our grandmother's time and in our great-grandmother's time, what happened to their art? And then, you know, the answer is, chilling enough to stop the blood right. it was that that i wanted to investigate about about books about what books do for you and also about what being deprived of that will do to you as well
1: there is and i'm forgetting now is it franny who talks about how the abolitionists always want to hear the bad bits yeah and yeah, and it's interesting that the story I mean because I mean, there are so many reasons why I love the story. I mean, how many, you know, boxes does it tick off for me? Do I love historical fiction? Yes. Do I love mysteries? Yes. Am I, you know, a sucker for a great love story? Absolutely. You throw in the gothic elements. I mean, there are so many parts <laughs> that I just love. And one of the things that I really love is that the the title of the book is The Confessions of Franny Langton and there are no spoilers here. You find out on the first page that Franny has been given to a Londoner, and I, and she's not a slave at this point because slavery does not exist in England at that time. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Well, you know, so that's what all of the English people prided themselves on saying, that there there's no slavery on English soil, and there never had been. You know, of course, part of the point is there was a lot of hypocrisy in right. that. Right. Uh, one of the questions is whether she is actually any freer in England than she had been in Jamaica, which is where she's been brought from.
1: And almost less free in, in a very strange way in London. Yes. But but so you have your title, The Confessions of, of Franny Langton. and And the assumption, of course, is, oh, so she is going to write her story and she's going to explain the murder. And this is what she is confessing. You flip that on its head. And in fact, she's not talking about the murder at all because it's something that she doesn't remember. And instead, we find out that the confessions are this is a very, very complicated character who has burdens on her soul that she is talking about. And just that the fact that you did that, I thought was just really brilliant because it did it you know, right, it takes the reader, it took this reader at least 30 or 40 pages, and you're suddenly thinking, oh, these confessions are are very <laughs> different than what I thought the title alluded to.
0: Yes, I guess it's a little bit of sleight of hand with a murder mystery. You know, I also love a kind of Frankenstein of a book, you know, stitched together sure. from all kinds of different things, love story, gothic drama, um, historical. Murder mystery. I did want strong narrative thread linking back to the murder mystery because I think, you know, quite frankly, and this is not a complicated literary answer, people read books because they want stories. And I don't think I'm not the kind of writer who shies away from that because I'm the kind of reader who wants to disappear into a book that, you know, forces me to turn the pages and stay up till three in the morning but I did like the idea of that sort of sleight of hand, that you're getting getting that kind of story on the surface, but there is a lot more going on beneath it. And as you say, Franny is complicated. I hope she's complicated in unexpected ways, because one of the other things I had never seen was someone tackling in fiction the idea of an anti-heroine, in the kind of circumstances Franny found herself growing up in. So she is in many ways forced, and that's debatable, but let's just say she's forced to become complicit. You know, she and she is bargaining with the people running the plantation where she grows up, not just for survival. She's, in a way, she's bargaining to thrive. She is taking as much as she can get, and she's trying to find happiness in life. I'd never really seen that either. It's not just a question of survival. And I wanted her to be complicated. You know, one of of my favorite reader responses is one that I think readers think annoys me. You know, sometimes authors get tagged in (laughs) negative reviews and people are always saying, oh, but Franny was so unlikable. And I think, yes, that's the point. (laughs) She is meant to be an anti-heroine. My sister-in-law, after she bought this book, sent me WhatsApp updates while she was reading it. And, you know, they came in sort of thick and fast initially, and then she went quiet. And I thought, oh, yeah, now now she's she's being challenged a bit. And then finally, after a period of silence, one came that said uh, simply, well, I've just thrown the book across the room because I'm completely fed up with Franny. <laughs> All of that I find quite delightful because she is subverting expectations. She's not a black character in a historical novel caught in a kind of mode of perpetual victimhood. Uh, She's something I hope completely different. And one thing she is, is complicated, morally complex. She does some things I hope I wouldn't have done. But she's also highly educated and she's a little bit selfish. She considers herself the most intelligent person in the room. She's arrogant. You know, how refreshing. Really, as a Black woman reading uh, historical novels, come across an arrogant Black female protagonist. Oh, no,
1: it's just Um, delightful.
0: Yeah, and, and all of those things were... A kind of way of subverting expectations so as you say even with the title you know in the very first chapter franny says this is not going to be one of those slavery narratives all sugared over in misery and despair right. so if there's a strong message which should be communicated even with the title is that this book is not going to give you what you expect so hang on and you'll find out what you're going to get
1: well even when she you know mentions phyllis wheatley and and she says and and please remember she did not die a poet She died.
0: Yeah, she died a maid. And and
1: I love that you talked about kind of the the Frankenstein-ness of putting the story together, because one of my questions was going to be, how did you decide on the skeleton that you were going to add the the ligaments and, and then, you know, the muscles too. And, and I thought, oh, that's a little bit too on the nose. So I, I
0: <laughs>
1: the fact that you mentioned it was great. But the complicated nature of Franny is something that really drew me to her. She says early on how confident a man must be to write down his own musings, expecting anybody else to be interested in reading them. And yes. that's one of those, I read that moment and stop and just laugh. And I forget, I think she was Was she referring to Defoe's writings at that point? Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, she's reading it's on the ship on the way over. That's right. She's reading Defoe's letter about literature and then and then further on. but of course she's she's sort of cheekily referring to herself as well yes, um,
1: exactly because then, then much later, she said uh, she's talking about Benham and who who you know she's been given to to be a maid. and she said that you know he knew that the surest way to hide your sins is to write your own account. And again, what a wonderful moment. And of course, that's exactly what she's doing. Yes. And so I love that, right, it's this double-edged sword where she is kind of mocking him, but then she's taking that power that he discovered and she's using it herself. Again, something that for the time you don't expect.
0: And it's a kind of metaphor for writing. You know, people shouldn't read a novel If the novel is well written, unless this is a novel's intention with any kind of, you know, with an awareness that the author is sitting on their shoulder. But the author is there. The author is there in the subtext. And so it's a it's a kind of nod at who do you think you are writing this novel? Do you have anything to say? Uh, So Franny is in in detailing her awareness of the hypocrisy of these men. She's coming to a kind of self-awareness as well. And that that's something I think that I recognize as one of the side effects of the process of writing, that it does kind of force you to examine your own thoughts and what it is that you're trying to say and whether it's worthwhile putting it down and whether you're trying to cover up your own sins in doing so as well, I suppose. And then
1: Right. She has a thought like that. And then later she'll say, she's talking about the world's laws, according to Franny. And she says something, I think it's like, blacks will only write about suffering as if our purpose here is to change their minds. And she's talking about what the expectations are of these abolitionists. And that was such a remarkable moment because Here's Franny being prescient as to what Edo Lodge is going to write with Why Stop Talking to White People About Race. Yes. And that's such a, I, I love when you have those moments of you're leaping almost 200 years across time. What we have in our hands today is echoing back to Franny's words then. And that's an example of where I just, again, i I close the book. I marvel at what you've done and just, mm-hmm. you know glory in the words for for just a moment
0: thank you for that and i think i mean you know it's a i get asked a lot and i think people don't mean it as a compliment why did you write historical fiction you know there are still some people who think historical fiction is not worth bothering with and i think The question is motivated by a confusion about what the relevance of all of this is. You know, it it just all seems very sort of fussy and fusty and strangely dressed people eating strange things and speaking strangely. That's the relevance. No one sets out to write historical fiction because they're concerned about the past, I don't think. Every single concern that drew me back to the laptop or my desktop when I didn't want to write this book, when it was the last thing I wanted to do, was contemporary. I remember actually writing during 2016, which was you know, quite a watershed year on both sides of the Atlantic. Alas. And being fueled by this sense of bewilderment at how, how far back We were traveling and how quickly. And in fact, then I came to realize it's not that we're traveling backwards quickly, it's that we hadn't traveled as far as I had thought we'd traveled all along in terms of racism and sexism and our attitudes towards uh, people dictating who can be in love with whom, who can marry whom, who's genetically considered intellectually inferior. All of the stuff that kind of injected straight into the themes of the novel seemed to be contemporary concerns. And so I was was bewildered about it. I was also angry about it. And My experience promoting the book has been, in fact, very similar to what Franny was talking about, that, you know, you're just being asked to write about suffering and you're being asked to explain suffering and that's your purpose. I've had very often to push back against that. And to insist on taking up space as a writer, first and foremost, without being put into those kinds of boxes. So it's all, as far as I'm concerned, it's all extremely, extremely relevant. And sadly, part of that is because we keep on making the same old mistakes.
1: We keep making the same mistakes. I mean, there's that wonderful moment where Madame is speaking to Langton and she's asking him about his work. And he's very dismissive of her because, of course, she is merely a lady. And her response to him is, oh, well, go slowly, Mr. Langton. (laughs) Let us see whether my womanly brain can keep a stride. And he doesn't even hear that that's a dig.
0: Correct. By the way, that all comes directly from my own experiences as well. That The thing that Madame said comes directly from the kinds of things I had to hold myself back from saying in partners meetings when I was working in a law firm. There is a kind of blissful ignorance on the part of men who have always been steeped in privilege And who are unaware of their own limitations and people who are marginalized, people who have to fight to sort of make their way inside from the margins, who have to equip themselves and therefore be aware that they're equipping themselves. Always know, we know what our talents and our strengths are, and we also know what our weaknesses are. But it's a strange kind of privilege for some, you know, some men, the sort of captains of industry and leaders of the world their own kind of willful blindness to their shortcomings. I, I had a lot of fun, I have to say, <laughs> interrogating all of that in this novel. <laughs>
1: well, it definitely comes through. And in that way where, in this case, Madam she digs him there, but then there's that other moment when Franny just asking, you know, why are you where you are right now? And Madam says very, very simply, I wanted his fortune. He wanted my looks. Yes. And that's so interesting because she clearly is so intelligent. She is so well-read. She puts Langton in his place and kind of dismisses this sort of scientific racism that that he's invested himself in so easily. But he's not recognizing it, and yet you know she's so drawn to just checking out and you know give me more laudanum, give me another brandy. It, it must be that, right, she sees that she's so stifled, and so what are the choices? And I love the stark relief that Franny is boxed in in one way because of the color of her skin, but Madame is boxed in in another way just because, right, she's a, a pretty bobble.
0: Yes. I mean, Franny is doubly boxed in. At one point, she says, you know, it's impossible to be black and a woman because there's another character in the, in the novel, Laddie, who, who gains a bit of independence, but is is sort of allowed entree into certain segments of abolitionist society, partly because he's a man. And, you know, it caused me to reflect on the great black abolitionist speakers of the time period and and how few of them were actually women, educated women. So Laddie is a kind of educated man, this sort of Olaudio Equiano um, figure in the novel. But also this is what Franny and Madame have in common, even though they have different experiences of being stripped of choice, they are effectively stripped of choice. And at one point, Madame says about her husband, you know, he'll only allow me to write if I can guarantee that my scribblings would be inferior to his. So it does go back to control who exercises it and who loses it or has to give it up or seeds it or never has it to begin with. And what does that do? Part of the response to the loss of control, Franny's is to kind of, she becomes addicted to books in a way and to learning. Madame becomes addicted to laudanum, as you've pointed out. All of it is a way of numbing their anger at the injustice of being unable to make choices for their own life. And that what they do with that anger, all of the women in the novel, that they're angry, but, but um, expressing that anger in either self-destructive ways or ways that destroy other people.
1: Sorry, I'm just interrupting to throw some context your way for what we talk about next. You know Franny and Madam, but we're about to mention Miss Bella and Fibba, her slave. Miss Bella is described as a spider in a web in her Jamaican plantation. She's Langton's wife. We talked about him, the great scientist who didn't realize Madam was pretty flagrantly mocking him. Again, just in context, Miss Bella is a spider in Jamaica, spinning a web around everyone, but especially Fibba and Franny, the slaves closest to her. When Phippa says very early in the book, and she's trying to warn Franny about Miss Bella, and she says that there's not one thing in this world more dangerous than a white woman when she bored. And yeah. that was another example of you don't understand. In this case, Miss Bella hates the colony where she is because she says it makes us monsters. And so to pass the time, what is she going to do but just manipulate, in this case, both FIBA and then Franny, which is a, a remarkable comment that you're making on this situation two centuries ago. And oh my gosh, how far have we come?
0: Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about your election um, in 2016 was how many white middle class women voted for, some would say, I would say, against their interests, you know, against the interests of feminism or progress for women.
1: They were complicit.
0: Complicity is a is a theme, it was a really big theme of the novel for me. It was something that I wanted to explore. I don't believe novels are built on themes, but if there was a kind of driving idea, this was one. And these systems depend on people who are victims also propping them up and taking part in them. And, you know, we see that in the case of Madame Benham, Madame is a victim of her husband's control, but she doesn't really spare a thought for the suffering of the servants in her own household who are working day and night um, to the point of exhaustion to keep things running and empty her chamber pots. You know, in in many ways, she's very spoiled and self-indulgent. And so it's about taking a long, hard look at not just complaining about your own victimhood, but thinking about where you might be victimizing other people as well.
1: And going back a little bit, where you said that you used your experience as a, as a lawyer, or, or that that experience informs different parts of the book, the, I was really interested in the, the sleepwalking defense that happens late, because you mentioned earlier, her attorney, Franny's attorney, is just saying, "Just give me, give me something that I can save your neck." with I, I'm murdering your line no I, I think you
0: I think you got the line I think you resurrected it exactly as it was if I remember correctly
1: and there's something that's supposed to happen and it doesn't happen and so the lawyer is scrambling and he comes up with this defense that I think was born in Boston yes, is, is that's that right. correct the
0: case of Albert Terrell it was. It's the sleepwalking defense. So Franny's lawyer puts forward this defense, which is essentially based on the idea that there is a connection between the effect of large doses of laudanum and sleepwalking in that it kind of induces the state where you're capable of action, but not of awareness, um, to put it simply. And I thought, well, this is all obviously so strange and bizarre and unbelievable that you can only stick it in a novel if it if it has its if it has some foundation in fact. So I went off looking for. Um, this is one of those cases of marvelous serendipity that happens when you when you've been stuck in a novel um, so long. It does happen sometimes that you think of something and then something helpful appears to back it up. I went looking for mid-19th century or early 19th century intoxication defences and found two marvellous cases. One was the case of Albert Tyrrell, who had been accused of, I think it was stabbing a prostitute to death. This was a prostitute he was living with and engaged in an adulterous relationship with. He was intercepted, driving a carriage or attempting to drive a carriage across the border into Canada, I think. So he'd gotten himself quite far away and he'd done all kinds of things which you'd think, you know, required consciousness and awareness, including getting himself dressed, leaving the room, finding this stable boy, getting horses, getting the carriage, etc. But his lawyer ran a successful sleepwalking defence that, you know, he couldn't be guilty of murder because he couldn't form an intention because he had been sleepwalking walking and well joy it was just a a little bit of magic really I had found exactly what I needed (laughs) (laughs) well and
1: one thing and definitely the courtroom parts sometimes there are my friends and I call them speed bumps that interfere with that suspension of disbelief that you want to have and oftentimes because my wife is an attorney if there's a courtroom scene or if there's, you know, legalese in a book, sometimes it's wrong and even i who am just you know on the outside and have, you know, no personal connection to even i sometimes think, oh you got that <laughs> Does wrong. Does your
0: wife do what what i always do when watching tv shows and you know just oh i can't watch this this is just so inaccurate. <laughs> yes,
1: and i defer to her in many things, but especially all law related matters. <laughs> But I just wanted to say that yours rang so true and just the courtroom jockeying back and forth that it did again seem to be that, oh, there's that very strong authorial hand that's not intruding, but you feel such confidence that everything in that courtroom at the Old Bailey is going to be done correctly and there are not going to be missteps. And for me especially, I really appreciated that.
0: Oh, I appreciate hearing that, in particular because it is such an unusual defence. I mean, it's obviously one that wouldn't fly now, but we, you know, we forget that back in the in the um, early nineteenth century, it was all a mix of kind of science and superstition, right. you know, the, and and religion. It all walked hand in hand, and so it it wasn't so far fetched then, as I discovered to my delight when I found it. You know, a case where where a similar defence was actually advanced, <laughs> but but you do need, I think, I think it's one of those cases where it helps to have been in courtrooms, because you do need that sense. It's sort of an intangible thing, really. It's not something you'd get from research, that sense of the theater, but in particular of the egos and the jockeying and the little inside behavior between the lawyers and the judge in particular that just adds to the atmosphere. And all of that, I have to say, even though I transplanted it, or transported it over to the 19th century, all of that was also heavily inspired by my time in practice.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And because so many of those things, they are timeless. The ego in the courtroom, right? That's not something that is, oh, that's a 20th century thing and not a 19th century thing.
0: (laughs) It's always been here and apparently it never goes away. It never,
1: (laughs) never goes away. Another thing that never goes away that we did speak about a little bit earlier, and I'm gonna ask you to read that passage on page 203 when Mm laddie speaks because earlier franny who's talking about abolitionists and she's saying the do-gooders are sniffing at the carcass of slavery what they crave is to hear the worst thing and that's another idea that really travels through the book because that happens fairly early on and then we're 200 pages in And if you could just briefly tell us who Laddie is and where we are in the story and then read that passage, that would be terrific.
0: Sure. Before I do, I I do want to say, picking up on that, that, that I have this idea that it's important not to indulge that desire all the time to hear about the worst things. Because as a Black woman who's the descendant of slaves, that's the only image I ever had well, either a completely sanitized and whitewashed one or just unrelieved, unmitigated suffering. And then what happens is a whole race of people is sort of cast in history as a group of people to whom horrible things are done. And what does that do? Doesn't it strip away the humanity, you know, the the complication in the stories, the nuance, seeing someone as a whole person and not just... The recipient of abuse and so you know it was very important to me to kind of question that a bit in this book and to make that point point. and i think so sorry go ahead and i think
1: that's what franny so eloquently states sometimes people only want to hear that part when there's so much more and and then i did like laddie's statement where he summarizes
0: yeah shall i read that now then? sure i'll um say a bit about Laddie before I do. So he's um, in many ways a kind of counterpart for Franny in the novel. They have a similar backstory. Laddie is also given as a gift. In his case, he's brought over to London as a very young boy from a plantation in Antigua by Mr. Benham, who later on becomes Franny's master. Uh, Mr. Benham gives Laddie as a gift to his new French wife, Madame Benham, who is destined to become Franny's lover. And Laddie grows up as a kind of child of the household, and Madame is very fond of him and treats him a bit like a son and comes to think of him as a, a bit like a son. But then, of course, he grows up, He becomes a man. And no one ever thinks about what would have happened to those little page boys. And they were many. They were, you know, the sort of latest accessory for wealthy English women in the late 18th, early 19th century, kind of like having a Birkin bag or something. When they grew up, they were put out to pasture, they were kicked out, they were tossed out. What happened to them? As Mr. Bennett says in the novel, you can't continue to keep a manservant um, who, whom your wife wants right. cuddled on her lap. And so Laddie has been kicked out, but he's made a way for himself, he's become a boxer. He has managed to achieve some independence because he makes money boxing. He also had a chance to go to Cambridge at the Benham's expense. And so he's highly educated. He's also very intelligent. And so he goes around making speeches at the invitation of abolitionists. But what he's really doing, again, is subverting their expectations. So he, they think that he is giving them uh, what they want, but then he challenges them. Uh, quite strongly from the podium. And so this extract I'm about to read is essentially Laddie telling a group of abolitionists like it is, you know, why are you asking me to speak? Why do you think that I am the person who should be speaking on behalf of, of my entire race? And so I will pick it up from the end of that extract. He made his voice quieter. Here's the rub you asking me to speak for them. How can I? Why have you asked me? Because you look at a single Black man and see all Black men as if one Black man is a representative of every other member of his race, allowed neither personality nor passion, not allowed to love anybody or anything It is for this reason that there are so many dead men inhabiting the new world, drifting through cotton and cane, zombies, men who were left enslaved even after the trade had been abolished. You abandoned them. Yes, you, with your good intentions. Even abolitionists succumbed to the idea that a man couldn't be stripped of his own assets without compensation. By that equation, those men you left behind are property, machines, not men. We might as well give you the blade too, since you also cut out their tongues. And that's Laddie.
1: I think that is so remarkable, especially that shivering image that you end with, where Laddie is saying, we probably should give you the razor because you've cut out our tongues. And we can't speak. And oh my gosh, 200 years later, yeah. what do we hear? We hear artists and athletes shut up and dribble. Yes. We don't want you to speak of politics. <laughs> and I just, I just... Okay, I was about to let my end of our exchange degenerate spectacularly, so I'm glad I heard that last call. It gives me time to ask one more question. Let's get to it. And I am curious, what do you think about the role of the artist? You've written this book, and anyone reading it knows the sort of purpose
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then sometimes like you say, you get this pushback where people expect you to only talk about a thing. And I'm just wondering, how do you view your role? How do you see the responsibility of in this case, an artist to talk about these? and I'm waving my hand kind of <laughs> just in the air, <laughs> just sort of gesturing so to the you know, the fresh hell that has has fallen upon us. And I'm just curious how you think about that.
0: That's a good question. I think the first part of the answer is that the artist has only the responsibility that she assumes. But for me, the responsibility I assume willingly is for anyone who consumes the art, I create to try to make life bearable, I, I do think that art is a big part of why life is bearable, why we get through it, and how. And part of that is just in helping to understand. You know, it's that the Joan Didion expression, which is often butchered, but I think that's what she meant when she said we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Right. It is trying to shape trying to impose some kind of narrative structure because we need it because it is the way we navigate life and then unfortunately there are burdens imposed on certain artists which which are there whether you ask for them or not and i think i think part of the burden for black artists and for female artists is to explain and i say it's a burden because i wish it wasn't so because i think having to explain yourself first before you can just be encountered on your own terms as an artist is is a waste of your time mm-hmm. Um, it's an extra hurdle that some artists don't have, but having, and I I think that's one of the things Laddie is getting at when he says, you know, you look at a single black man and see all black men. Again, that's Laddie talking, but to a certain extent, it's me talking as well. It's me saying, perhaps cheekily, perhaps slightly tongue in cheek, are you looking to me to explain to you what it's like to be black or to have been black because I am black? Um, isn't that in itself reductive? should that be part of a black artist's responsibility? It's a question. It's not one to which I have an answer, but it's one that I think we need to start answering because it does mean, and I made this point recently on Twitter when... Absolutely horrified by what had happened in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and completely transfixed as so many people were by the Black Lives Matter protests and then being asked by so many publications to write about it or by so many outlets to speak about it you know what do you think as a black person what does this mean as a black person and my response on twitter was just remember that there's an opportunity cost whenever you ask a black artist to deal with racism to address racism to fix racism or to explain it to you it means they can't do something else they can't make other art does it always have to be art in service of convincing people that we are human and should not be murdered at the hands of police or excluded from certain activities or victims of systemic racism. Is that the only reason that black artists make art? I mean, you know, it's a facetious question, because obviously the answer is no.
1: And it's so hard, because that is the conversation that happens time and time again. And I'm sure it's just enervating, right, that you're that the request is, oh, So explain it to us.
0: Yes. And I I always go back to Toni Morrison. Oh, gosh, we've mentioned her so often, but it's because, you know, like Shakespeare and Baldwin, there's a Toni Morrison quote for every occasion. (laughs) I go back to her saying uh, on that question of, can you please explain yourself to us? Her saying, I am not writing for black people. I am writing to and through black people. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it. It's a privilege to do the latter. And it's a burden to do the former. And, you know, all I can do is, you know, I am a black female artist. And I'm very proud of both of those adjectives. But, But I don't see them as limiting. I have to see them as empowering. And I bring that kind of attitude to my work.
1: And there are so many echoes in your own work. Callbacks to, you just mentioned Shakespeare. There's a moment, I think Franny says, life is a brief candle. Yeah. There's another moment where, and maybe it's during an interrogation, but somebody says something like, and what do two women do in a room of their Mm -hmm. own? Mm -hmm. And that's such a lovely reference to one of the greatest writers of the last century, but then Mm -hmm. it is changed and turned into what your talking about. And, and sometimes as a reader, that should be enough, right? You've done the work, right? You've spent the 10 hours a day for two years crafting (laughs) the book and that should be enough. Then though you have half the population saying, shut up. I don't want to hear you talk about the work. And then you have the other half of the population saying, explain it to me, please. (laughs) And what a, I mean, what a, what a horrible, what a tug of war that you're put into, and the and the artists that have to you know even worry about the art i mean james baldwin he writes Giovanni's room and and, yes. And he's told.
0: It's the example I always come back to because, you know, there are no, he he wrote Giovanni's Room and it's a gay love story. And And on the one hand, his publisher says to him, oh, this is going to completely finish you off. You know, your audience, which is presumed to be black, will disappear. And on the other hand, people are disappointed because, well, you know, this character isn't black. You know, are you writing about a white man? And I always think of James Baldwin writing Giovanni's Room as an act, not just of genius, but of bravery for precisely yes. that reason.
1: That was a book that I came to pretty late, maybe 20 years ago or so. A very good friend of mine who was a co-worker was aghast that, that I had not read. Right, I read The Fire Next Time and everything else, but I had not read yeah. Giovanni's Room. And he literally just put it into my hands and said, we, we shall not speak until... <laughs> <laughs> You have read this, but then knowing the backstory, just like you said, you know, the warning, oh, no, you can't do this. And then you do it. And how come the race thing isn't again? It's just we ask so much.
0: Yes, it reminds me actually of um, one of my favorite modern artists, Jordan Peele. Whose follow-up to the brilliant Get Out was Us, which is a sort of more conventional horror movie, right. and people were sort of twisting themselves into all kinds of contorted positions, trying to find the hidden message about race and what's he saying about race. And you know, Jordan Peele, I think, said um, openly on several occasions, it doesn't always <laughs> have to be about race.
1: <laughs> I know, and and right, and the expectation is, but yeah. doesn't it, oh, isn't that the you're Right. The, the, the but corner. you're a
0: black artist. Yeah. Aren't you going to explain race to us and, you know, how it feels to be black in the world? Isn't that your function? And that's, you know, it, and I don't want to be misinterpreted or misunderstood. It's a privilege to to be a black artist and to engage in what I consider to be our stories, you know, Caribbean stories from the Caribbean, stories about how um, we live in the Caribbean, about Caribbean history, about being a black woman in the world. All of that's a privilege. But but the point, there's a point about the angle at which you approach it as the consumer of the art and what you expect from that Black artist. That's the point I think I'm making.
1: Sarah, I, again... I need to thank you so much for taking time. And I, and I could, as you can tell, I, there are many other questions <laughs> that I have that that I, I would love to pester you with. But I will say that hopefully there will come a time when we can, again, share a drink. W- one of my deepest regrets is I was fortunate enough to meet Sarah as a, at a wonderful pre-publication party in Cambridge, and you were traveling that night or very early the next day and you were headed to San Francisco, which is where yeah. I originally hail from. And you were going to replicate that party with all of my friends from the yes. other coast. <laughs> and really, I should have. Uh, and we joked about me hopping on a plane back when you could actually hop on a plane <laughs> and crashing that party. And I think that maybe they would have let me. And I'm sorry that I did not do that because yeah. that was a, a pretty remarkable evening that night in cambridge just great fun
0: such great fun both nights actually american booksellers absolutely the best we we had such a wonderful tour um two two authors from england and one from australia and we were made to feel at home in each city it was it was fantastic
1: and to see then those books get released into the world you know and, and what they all have done is really for us one of the great joys of you know, being a part of those celebrations. So again, I am um, raising this class to Sarah Collins, the incredible author of The Confessions of Franny Langton, which you can get hopefully from your local independent bookseller. And it's now in paperback, award-winning and wonderful. And Sarah, I wish that we were here and we could clink glasses, but thank you so very, very much. It was just a joy. And really, I can't say thank you enough.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me, Nick. And I'm going to, I've made careful notes. I'm going to go and see if I've got the ingredients <laughs> in my kitchen to make myself a Franny's newfangled, old fashioned, or whatever Indeed. you're going to be calling Indeed. it next.
1: <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck to you with everything that is happening, obviously. And thank you again so much.
0: Thank you so much, Nick. And you too. All right. All the best. Thank you.
1: And we'll talk again. I want to thank you for joining me on this inaugural voyage of Drinks with Nick. A big thank you, especially, goes out to the wonderful Sarah Collins. And of course, to Harper Collins for publishing her book here in the States. To Ann DeCourcy, their terrific sales representative in Greater Boston, who included me in that dinner a year and a half ago. And to Jim Hankey, the Harper's Rep in the Bay Area, whose dinner I almost crashed. I really enjoy not knowing where a conversation between a reader and a writer is going to go. Here we started out talking about one book, and then, in a not-too-long conversation, we ended up referencing Margaret Atwood, Toni Morrison, Charlotte Bronte, Via Jane Eyre, Alice Walker, Phyllis Wheatley, Daniel Defoe, Rennie Edo Lodge, William Shakespeare, Virginia Woolf, James Baldwin, and Joe Didion. I just love that. I am going to ask two favors. First, purchase The Confessions of Franny Langton from an independent bookstore. If you don't already have a favorite, why not check out IndieBound to find one near you? Second, I would appreciate it if you subscribed or followed Drinks with Nick. I promise to bring you more great authors and more drinks. Thanks also to the sponsor of today's launch, the Law Offices of Dean Petrolakis. Yes, Dean is my brother. Sometimes you need a brother to get the ball rolling. Thank you to my terrific producer, Trish McDonald. You made things sound better than they should have. Thanks to the members of Idiot Grins. They allowed me to use their music both coming and going. You can find them wherever you shop for music. Thanks, Randy. And of course, thanks to Karen, Elizabeth, and Christina they let me hide out in our bar while doing all the recording. I hope the rest of you join me again next time.